they get in there and they find that it's a sort of cult recruiting centre. The psychiatrists that were working there were licensed by the government through Howard, cult member, to use LSD on patients. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr Zanthi Mallet. Last week we had a very interesting discussion with Chris Johnson. Chris is an author who explored the cult in Melbourne known as the family. He's looked at cults in general and we explored a whole range of issues around how the family became established, uh, its leader, Anne Hamilton Byrne, quite unusually a female leader of a cult, charismatic evil woman, and how ultimately the children became involved in the cult and other members of the community prior to the, the, the whole situation being detected. Great discussion, wasn't it? It was. It was fascinating. And obviously Chris knows an awful lot about that particular cult and the dynamics of both the leader and the followers and the enablers. And it was certainly a great discussion. I think this week we're going to broaden it out slightly, aren't we, for this episode and really look at kind of cults and how people end up being in positions of cults, being victimised by cults and leading cults because there are certainly some similarities that we've seen. Some things, you know, some of these cults have lots and lots in common, don't they, especially the leaders? Well, I think the takeaways from that discussion and... I've worked with people who have survived cults over the years. Inevitably a charismatic leader, inevitably a great capacity to manipulate vulnerable people into believing that whatever you're going through at the moment in the world will improve with the affliction of time if you follow me. Inevitably a claim to have some connection with divinity, whether it's in her case Jesus Christ or other godlike figures. This is part of the tool bag that they used to get people on board. What was interesting about the family was her background, impoverished rural Victoria, a mother who was psychiatrically unstable, diagnosed ultimately with paranoid schizophrenia, and coming from that background, managing ultimately to inveigle away into Melbourne high society with a whole range of enablers, uh, a well-regarded psychiatrist at the time, a lawyer, a senior academic, a professor of physics. And then um, I think it then gathers its own momentum. It acquires gravitas and credibility through the people she associated with. And ultimately then it became increasingly evil because children were stolen from hospitals. You had corrupt social workers, corrupt documents, forged documents. And uh, these poor kids fell under her control and spell. All of these situations are obviously unique in themselves, but there are certainly similarities between cults. Certain things we see coming up in time and time again, aren't they? Like all all cults are basically led by psychopaths, aren't they? There's that, that one figure at the top. Sometimes they're sadistic, sometimes not, but all are incredibly charismatic and they have these huge personalities where they can control people. But they all rule with an iron rod too, don't they? Punishment goes along with the love bombing that we heard about. Again, another one of those core themes, bring people in, engender them with trust, make them feel that they're part of something bigger, and then the control starts. Well, their narcissism is challenged, and that's one of the things that came out of our discussion with Chris. She was a narcissist, a template for narcissism in many ways. She controlled others with the sort of oscillating love bombing and severe punishment Young children don't know where they're coming from. They have no capacity to predict what their life will be like day to day. 
And unless they're incredibly psychologically robust, they become very malleable to the manipulation of the cult leader and those that she surrounded herself with. The other interesting thing about this case, very troubling as it is, it was the use of hallucinogenic drugs, which, as Chris said, was legally prescribed up until about the mid-70s. So you had this evil psychiatrist, other enablers in the medical profession who were prescribing hallucinogens. I think he also said that the kids up at the Lake Eildon property were often given tranquilizers and sedatives. Some of the children were administered LSD, blindfolded and kept in a dark room where the brainwashing would continue. I mean, it's remarkable that any of them came out not psychotic by this process. Well, that's a torture technique, isn't it? Kind of keep, you know, reducing senses, blindfolding, like repetitive messaging. This is this is literally something you use as a, a mechanism of torture. And warfare. Exactly. And the other thing, of course, she kept them separated from the community. So there's no external points of reference for these children. Being children, they wouldn't have them anyway. The other evil thing, of course, is that these children, some of them at least, were stolen. They never knew their families of origin. And I found it very interesting when he spoke about what happened to these kids when they were eventually liberated mm. from the family. For some of them, it became worse because they had no sense of who they were. No name. They didn't <coughs> even know their own name. Nothing about their family of origin. They didn't know their name. They didn't know if they had siblings. Some of them were reunited with their mothers, some weren't. And as he said, you know, you had multi-generational abuse and trauma. Mm. The mother who lost the child, the child who was tortured and brainwashed, and no doubt I would add to that the children of those survivors and probably if they were still alive, the parents of the mothers. So uh, you, you can't overstate the impact that this had upon these individuals and broader Melbourne, I guess, in many ways. But abuse is rife in these cults, isn't it? That's, you know, again, one of the core themes along with the brainwashing, the love bombing, the coercion, all of these things are like standard cult-esque, aren't they? But the followers are utterly devoted to their leaders and would literally, in some cases, have died for them. Why is that? What, what is with these people, these leaders, like the Hamilton Burns, you know, the David Crashes of the world, that engendered that level of devotion in their followers? No external points of reference, probably fear, fear of the unknown. If I run away from the cult, what will happen to me? How will I survive? I mean, they lose their independence intellectually and emotionally and consequently they're very vulnerable to this type of manipulation and devotion. Uh, look at Jonestown, where people voluntarily ended their lives, you know, for the sake of their leader. Extraordinary stuff. And what are the common characteristics then of cult leaders? Because we've kind of isolated Hamilton Byrne because she was a woman. But, you know, that seems to be, from my reading of it, the only thing that is in fact different, you know, that's and that is unusual. But generally to me, she is kind of archetypal cult leader. I think Chris described her that way. She was very typical of most of them beyond the gender issue. Articulate, charismatic, has a message, resilient with a message. But, of course, she was facilitated in many ways by drug use, uh, the control of others, and then the isolation and the psychological and corporal punishment uh, which would accrue. Interestingly enough, he said there was no suggestion of sex abuse with this cult. Mm. Yeah, because that is very common, isn't it, that abuse, sex is used as a 
punishment, but also as a mechanism of control? Uh, control and love bombing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the children, the cult of Moses, David, as they were known back in the day, that morphed into the children of God, <clears throat> who in some ways were very different. I was involved in that case uh, years ago. But they used to use a technique called flirty fishy, where young... I know what this is, yeah. yeah. young attractive women would go out on the on the streets, not as hookers, but they'd love bomb men, invite them back and they would shower them with love and sex with a view to getting them involved in the cult. And it worked. And it worked. Well, it's a powerful motivator, isn't it, sex for some? Yeah, yeah, and they certainly they know how to capture people, don't they? Once they have them in their clutches, then the external points of reference that may enable these people to say this isn't quite right um, dissipate. So they lose their objectivity and step by step, degree by degree, they become more emotionally immersed and dependent upon others in the cult and the leader. And the best way to get ahead in the cult is to acquiesce to the demands of the leader. But just like all psychopaths, these people are very good at identifying the vulnerable. So, you know, a lot of the cult members are highly educated, very intelligent, wealthy, influential, all of those things. And yet there seems to be a vulnerability around a lot of them that they are looking for something else. It may be a point in their life where they need something to believe in or something to hook onto or something to be part of. But it appears that for the vulnerable to those particular stimuli, then the cult leaders are very good at identifying them. Absolutely. Although Chris did say in Melbourne that these women that gave up their kids and became involved, it wasn't so much out of that level of vulnerability. It was a sociological phenomenon. Women were starting to get divorced, leave their husbands, looking for a new identity. That's the thing. And a new start They were still looking for something bigger to be part of. And the doctors who became involved, he felt, were... Uh, some of them love being part of a uh, an elitist secret society. I think that's how he described it. It's almost like boys' club, but far more evil. And I think it's particularly interesting when the family were when it was developing into a cult when Hamilton Byrne first kind of started this, because you have to look at what was going on culturally at the time. You know, this counterculture was developing. You know, we had the 60s and 70s when there was so much social change anyway, wasn't there? People were really looking for different ways to live, different lifestyle choices, you know. So I think that it has grown up in that kind of, it's not a social vacuum is what I'm saying. You know, this particular cult developed in a time and place when there was almost an opening for it and Hamilton Byrne just stepped right in. Right place, right time. She started out teaching yoga as I recall. Yes. And uh, that gave her some credibility because it was very in vogue back then. All of these dynamics came into play, and uh, but she gained gravitas and credibility because of the enablers which she recruited. So medical practitioners, solicitors, high society in Turak, Melbourne. Turak's one of those suburbs, a bit like Vaucluse in Sydney. All of these people, no doubt, were, as we would describe them these days, influencers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah. so they would tell their friends about it. Their friends would tell other friends. They'd recruit them. They'd recruit them that way. What I found extraordinary amongst many things in this case that's extraordinary is the willingness of um, some mothers to give up their children. Breathtaking. 
Yeah, absolutely incredible, the power she had over them. And, and I know it's not exactly the same thing, but whenever I think of cults, I am brought back to what happened in Snowtown with John Bunting. And I, I know that that isn't a standard cult in that, you know, he didn't have, Bunting didn't have this this big following. He didn't amass all this wealth. Um, he didn't he didn't really put himself out there as a kind of messiah or anything like that. None of, none of those elements were there. But you still have this very charismatic psychopath who can coerce other people into doing the most extraordinary and awful things because of the power of love bombing in some circumstances. You know, his stepson, uh, he certainly love bombed him into kind of inclusion in this situation. Um, and yet, you know, you've got this, he had this whole group of people who coalesced around him. So to me, if Bunting, this is what I was kind of trying to say, if Bunting was in a different environment, then could he have gone on to become a cult leader? Because he clearly had a power over people. Mm. Well, it's quite possible. We'll never know. I was interested in the end game with um, Hamilton Byrne. Obviously, power, control, coercion, ego played into it. But also for her, I suspect, the accumulation of wealth. Many properties around Melbourne, that was diluted after she was raided and other people got rid of the property, so there wasn't much to claim in terms of compensation and so on. And without getting too psychological about her, she's deceased, but coming from a background of instability and impoverishment, I think money was also a primary driver for her and she saw this as a vehicle. I don't think that she went to yoga classes thinking one day she would teach yoga and then become a cult leader, but with the passage of time, various types of circumstances, vulnerable, gullible people and enablers. She saw an opportunity. She saw a great opportunity and made a lot of money out of it. But, you know, the money often <clears throat> follows these cults too, doesn't it? I mean, how many cults have you heard of where, you know, as soon as you, when you join you have to sign over or your property and wealth to the cult. It's like one of the conditions. I mean, that's making money is one of the reasons, you know, these cults do, these leaders do what they do. Well, they become multi, multi-millionaires, the cult leaders, and, of course, part of that money is then funneled back into marketing. It becomes a business for them. And um, the disciples have to collect money. And uh, as Chris was saying, other people in Melbourne had to pay a tie, so a percentage of their wage would go towards the family and so on. It's mind-boggling to think that intelligent people um, are so vulnerable to this, but I've argued for a long time, uh, there for the grace of God go many. Uh, it's not as though you need to have a psychiatric condition or an intense psychological vulnerability to become involved in this stuff. It may start innocently enough and... It just escalates with time and people become desensitised to what's going on and they lose their objectivity to the point that they become putty in the hands of the cult leader. And this particular incident, the family kind of, you know, it was quite um, oh, almost calm the way it kind of all came to an end. You had the rage and stuff, but, you know, certainly we've seen other situations where you know, people end up dying as a result. I, I'm Look thinking, at Waco. That's what I was thinking. The Branch Davidians, who were an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, um, led by, obviously, David Koresh as their leader. You know, the Waco, Waco siege in Texas in 1993 saw, I think, 82 Branch Davidians died 
um, including 28 children in yeah. that case, plus four federal agents. And there was a siege that lasted 51 days. I still I remember. I remember the footage mm. going on and on and on. So, you know, some of these situations can become so extreme and yet the followers maintain faith, don't they? Well, I described it earlier as almost like warfare, you know, the techniques and torture of war and people become brainwashed and they, uh, who knows what they're advised at the time, but probably if you don't support this, we're all going to die anyway. And if we die, we'll go to a higher power. So it doesn't matter so much. But sometimes they're willing to kill their own children. I know. Not only give them up, which is astonishing enough in itself, but actually kill the children and themselves, you know. Well, look at, you know, child sacrifice, you know, Aztec Indians, Inca Indians. There's evidence anthropologically, and it's more your area than mine, of young children being sacrificed in the name of the deity. It's not that different. It's surprising and shocking, isn't it, that parents could do that, but it does occur, and it's always occurred. And this theme as well of, of the kind of um, the second coming, you know, that's very common too, isn't it? This kind of quasi-religion where the cult leader is claiming to be, you know, Christ's return to save everybody. I mean, that's another kind of common theme, isn't it? It is. And I guess in uncertain times, post-COVID, global planet Earth, for example, people are more uncertain. They're more anxious about the future. You look what's going on uh, in the Ukraine and so on. They're going to be more vulnerable to these solicitations. Uh, they, they're going to be more vulnerable to this sort of argument that um, you need to follow us. Whatever happens here, you'll be saved and everything will be all right, provided you believe in me and follow me. Well, we are seeing a rise, aren't we, of kind of the conspiracy theorist and, you know, all of those kind of out there theories that are going wrong. Social media is probably playing into that. So do you think we could potentially have a number of these kind of situations occurring even in Australia right now that haven't actually come to the fore yet? Well, it's quite possible. Um, people who don't acknowledge government in Australia. Um, sovereign who... citizens. Sovereign. Another thing, that's a term we didn't know, what, two years ago? I think it's always been there. I, I think that social media has enabled it. And it's a great marketing tool, isn't it? So in days gone by, there might have been people out there that wouldn't join a cult because they didn't know it existed. Now they can become engaged online and it goes from there. Look at the rise of neo-Nazism around the planet, for example. Well, we know it's not lost to history because I was reading about a case from May just this year where an evangelical Christian preacher, a Kenyan called Paul McKenzie, told his followers that the world was going to end on the 15th of April and Satan was going to rule for a thousand years. You've got another one of these kind of religious cults. We got that wrong. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. So, you know, we've missed that target. Um, he was originally a taxi driver and the founder of the church Good News International. Um, and searching the organisation's 800 Searching the organisation's 800-acre estate in um, in Kenya, authorities discovered the bodies of 80 people in shallow graves. Most had starved themselves to death following his teachings. Like you know, this is how they were going to become you know resurrected in the afterlife. Although a few of them had been asphyxiated. Um, so they possibly were strangled. And he came to the rise through a TV show and he had um, a YouTube channel and he was really propelled to greater heights through those mediums, which he wouldn't have had access to previously and wouldn't have gathered 
that level of following. But at least 200 people died as a result of this cult. Well, television gives people credibility. I mean, I'm sceptical about it. Uh, You and I have been on television many, many times over several decades. But um, the power of television never ceases to amaze me. If you've been on TV, it elevates your status in the eyes of some and gives you greater credibility. So if you're preaching through television, through YouTube, all these kind of online uh, facilities that people can use, inevitably a percentage of people will sign up to that course because, as we've discussed, it gives them a new sense of purpose in life, it gives their life meaning, and no matter how terrible their lives currently may be, ultimately they'll improve by belonging to the cult. (laughs) Well, certainly these people didn't because he ordered them to starve themselves and their children to death so that they could meet Jesus in heaven ahead of the world ending, which obviously we know it didn't. And he actually had had this whole plan, um, three-stage plan, so the children were to die first, then the women, and then the men along with himself. So this is actually a suicide cult. You know, and these people went along with it. They literally starved themselves to death. He didn't die, so the there was a tip-off and the compound where everyone was living, um, it was raided and um, some people were taken to hospital who later died because they were too far gone, so 200 people have died. But, yeah, he is, he is a survivor, but his plan was apparently to kill himself along with the men in stage three of the process, children first. So he's a, a psychopath and a liar. Getting back to Hamilton Byrne, just for one moment, the other Mm. thing that struck me was she did a runner too. She went off to the UK, the USA and Hawaii and she was eventually detected through some fairly astute FBI investigations, brought back to Australia, extradited. The thing that struck me that she couldn't be charged with much of what she did. Minor fraud matters, that was all. And uh, Chris said she received a fine, no jail. No, $5,000. $5,000 fine. $5,000. No jail time, nothing, and all the enablers walked away scot-free. And given they stole children and, you know, gave people drugs, that's extraordinary that nobody has actually faced any kind of real consequences for any of Mm. this. Oh, obviously, except the surviving victims. Well, I've seen a number of them, and uh, I can say that what they were exposed to continues to haunt them, if I could put it that way. It's been a uh, very difficult journey for some. She ended up with dementia. And the other thing that struck me in terms of religious overtones or undertones, there was um, a drawing of the Last Supper in Mm. her room. And talk about the ultimate violation and, in my view, psychologically, the continuing need to maintain control. Uh, Chris was saying that photographs of all her children, in inverted commas, were on the wall of her room in the nursing home. So to the end, she wanted to have some connection and control, albeit, uh, I guess, vicariously through the uh, through the photographs. I wonder how those children, now adults, would have felt knowing that their photos were in her room. Yeah, I don't know. That's not something that's ever been raised with no, me. I, mean, I didn't it, know about that. No, nor did I. I, was, I found that quite extraordinary. How do people recover when they've been in a cult as a child? You mentioned earlier on in the first episode um, deprogramming them. How does that take place? You know, what, what's that process? Well, what Evelyn Einstein did was she would keep these kids generally on a one-to-one basis in a room 
and beyond being given food and water and so on, she would sit with them and systematically break down the logic surrounding their subjective approach to what they'd been through, to point out the lies, to point out the inconsistencies. And at some point they'd have an epiphany where they would realise that they had been used and abused and manipulated and so on, and then they would break down and they would come back to reality in a sense. Uh, The broader question is how does this process affect these people? Uh, The short answer is badly. So you may deprogram them so that they get the, the nonsense out of their brains, if I could put it that way, but the emotional consequences of what they've been through dependent on the the duration and the intensity of that experience, can be lifelong and these people generally require additional treatment. She was not treating them, she was deprogramming them. There's there's a difference. So what would treatment look like then in that context? Once they've been deprogrammed or would it happen alongside? Uh, Well, the way I understood it with her, and I guess everyone has a different approach, you've got to get back to square one. You've got to get rid of the programming to then look at what you've been through in a more objective way. And I would imagine then that you would treat the symptoms as they arise. High levels of anxiety, insecurity, flashbacks, symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, all of those symptoms would need to be treated either pharmacologically or through psychotherapy. And people may think that cults in Australia are a thing of the past, but it was just very recently there was a Seven News Spotlight story about a cult called Providence, which I hadn't heard of, um, allegedly operating in suburban Australia today. Um, And they apparently use shopping centres to recruit young blonde women who are then trafficked to South Korea. And the leader, a convicted sex offender, also claims just like Hamilton Byrne, that he's the next messiah. Um, just again, like David Koresh of the Branch Davidians, they you know they, they all think that they're God reincarnated or Jesus reincarnated. And these young women are groomed into this is basically allegedly a sex cult, and they're yes. brainwashed into believing that they're the brides of God and therefore the brides of the cult leader, and that it's their duty to provide him with sex. I watched that uh, documentary. I thought it was very well done. It's very disturbing. Shopping centres are often a a popular recruitment place for these individuals. I can remember in the 70s and 80s, the Moonies would hang around uh, Centre Point as it was being built and uh, they'd give you pamphlets inviting you back for a a lecture and a meal and so on. I always declined. The Hare Krishnas have worked this way. And so um, I guess they have a sort of sense of Who's vulnerable? The vulnerable ones, of course, are the ones who accept the invitation. I'm sure there's many other people who say, look, I'm not interested. But once they get them into their clutches, that's when the real programming and brainwashing occurs. But this, this could be happening or, you know, potentially has been happening across Australia today. And I find that quite extraordinary because, you know, you think about cults and you think about the key ones like, you know, Waco and the family and the others, the Moonies, and you think... It's a thing of the past, but it really isn't. I think it'll keep going on. Uh, There will always be psychopaths. There will always be people who will want to enrich themselves at the expense of vulnerable people. And, of course, you know, as we've discussed with the power of social media now, they can cast a global net. You don't have to be in a shopping centre in Sydney to get someone in Washington to sign up. They just do it online. 
So what should people do if they are worried about somebody and they believe that they are involved with a group that could be dangerous, that could be cult-like, you know, what do they do? Is there anything that they can do to try and, you know, extract their family member or friend or whatever before it's too late? I always think prevention is better than cure. And I think good communication between parents and children, it's my mantra. Whatever the issue is, you need to have good communication with your kids. You need to approach this in an objective adult way and alert them to the potential red flags. And what are those red flags in a cult? Like, you, you know... Beware of love bombing. <laughs> yeah. Don't accept invitations to go to random households. I mean, often these people, you mentioned the vulnerabilities, they're the ones with low self-esteem, generally speaking, looking for a sense of identity, looking for a group to belong to. And the cult, not that it's presented as a cult to start with, but these group of people offer them all this. They offer them validation. They give them a false sense of security. And as we've described many times, they get love bombed. So they feel really, really special. Um, so kids need to be educated about this. Parents need to improve their communication skills. If they notice their child is drifting away or their teenage, adolescent child is drifting away, they need to talk to them. Prevention is better than cure because often the cure may not exist. Well, I think cults are going to continue to fascinate us, the leaders particularly, because of their extraordinary strength of their personalities and what they can coerce people into doing. And for me, also the followers and the reasons why people end up in these situations and ultimately when they get out, their recovery. I think all of the psychological impacts. So, you know, it's something I think we, we're going to have more conversations about because it's not been assigned to the past. And a lot of the red flags are the same kind of red flags we've seen with other cases, the coercive controllers, you know, the love bombing. There are certain themes here that are red flags for a lot of these different situations. Well, I agree with that. And I think it, um, the power of social media, we live un in uncertain times currently. Um, COVID clearly has destabilised the planet. And uh, it's demonstrated, if nothing else, that things can change very rapidly on the planet. Look at how the world changed in a matter of weeks and months in early 2020 as a consequence of COVID lockdowns, everything stopped. For some people, that's created an underlying sense of insecurity, ontological insecurity, where they, they, they can't be certain about the future. Uh, so in immediate real times, they're going to look for people who give them a sense of security. Some people find religion. Others may be vulnerable to cults, particularly if there's charismatic leaders involved. Psychologically vulnerable people, of course, are very malleable to this type of dynamic and consequently more likely to become involved in the process of becoming involved in a cult. Mm. So I guess the message is be careful. Be careful what you become involved in. You know, watch for the love bombers, the elements of control, because many people could be susceptible to this given the right circumstances. And parents, love your kids and communicate with them and look for changes in their behaviour and demeanour. Absolutely. So that was Motive and Method. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you found this an interesting episode. I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. And I'm Tim Watson Munro. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. 
And remember, if you're loving the show, you can give us a review, you can subscribe to our channel and feed, and you can recommend us to friends and family. You can also set up a bell notification alert so that you'll know first when a new episode is available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. 